You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Episode 104 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. As y'all recall, when we left off last week, it was the afternoon of March 7th, 1862. And although no one knew it quite yet, the Federals had the Battle of Pea Ridge half won. The Confederate force on the Leetown portion of the battlefield had been defeated and was in retreat. But, as we mentioned last week, that fighting was only part of the Battle of Pea Ridge, because over around Elkhorn Tavern, the battle for control of the Telegraph Road raged all that day and much of the next. Last week, we talked about how Federal Commander Samuel Curtis had dispatched Grenville Dodge's 1st Brigade of the 4th Division, led by Eugene Carr, north to Elkhorn Tavern to counter the rebel threat to the Army's rear. Carr intercepted the enemy force, led by Earl Van Dorn and Sterling Price, as it was advancing through Cross Timber Hollow, immediately north of the tavern. If you want to picture a map of this part of the battlefield in your mind's eye, just picture the Telegraph Road running north-south. So you have the Telegraph Road running from the top of your map to the bottom of your map. Then at Elkhorn Tavern, another road, the Huntsville Road, comes in from the east and joins the Telegraph Road. Then, just a bit south of the tavern, maybe 500 yards, the Ford Road comes in from the west and joins the Telegraph Road. And there really was a tavern at Elkhorn Tavern. It was a large, white, two-story building with a huge set of antlers fixed atop its roof. The tavern and its outbuildings were located in a sizable clearing on the Telegraph Road near those two important road junctions with Huntsville Road and Ford Road. South of Elkhorn Tavern was the Federal Army's main position along the Telegraph Road at Little Sugar Creek, where Samuel Curtis had anticipated meeting the Confederate advance. But Earl Van Dorn had used the Bentonville detour to circle around behind the Federals from the west. Y'all recall that part of Van Dorn's army had split off and used the Ford Road, but that part of the rebel army was defeated near Leetown, and two Confederate generals, Ben McCulloch and James McIntosh, were dead. However, the part of the rebel army that had stayed on the Bentonville detour had succeeded in reaching the Telegraph Road north of Elkhorn Tavern, deep in the Union Army's rear. Led by Van Dorn and Sterling Price, those Confederates, perhaps 5,000 men, then moved south on the Telegraph Road toward the tavern. But just north of Elkhorn Tavern, in some extremely rugged terrain called Cross Timber Hollow, the advancing rebels ran into Carr's Federals. 
So that just about brings us back up to speed with where we left off with the story last week, the part of the story at Elkhorn Tavern. Cars Federals have come up the Telegraph Road from Little Sugar Creek just in time to stall the rebel advance and cross Timber Hollow, just north of the tavern. The Confederates now face the difficult task of fighting their way up out of the hollow in order to reach the clear ground around Elkhorn Tavern. After Federal reinforcements arrived on the scene, there was a lull in the fighting as both sides adjusted their lines and prepared for the Confederates' final push that Carr knew was coming. Just before the lull in the fighting, at about 2 p.m., Van Dorn received his first indication that all might not be well with the other part of his army. An officer informed Van Dorn that McCulloch's troops were heavily engaged on the Ford Road. Before this, Van Dorn had been anticipating the other part of his army would come in on the Ford Road and hit the Yankees at Elkhorn Tavern from the west, but now this new report cast doubt on that happening. At about the same time, about two o'clock, Sterling Price was wounded. He was hit in the right arm and side, but refused to leave the field, only having his aides bandage the arm with handkerchiefs. Meanwhile, Samuel Curtis had been reluctant to believe that the rebel activity in his rear had been anything except a diversion. But, after dispatching Carr back to Elkhorn Tavern, and after visiting the spot himself, and since by 2 p.m. there was absolutely no sign of any Confederates at Little Sugar Creek, well, Samuel Curtis finally decided he needed to send most of his remaining forces north to Elkhorn Tavern. But would he be in time? At 4.30, with Van Dorn controlling the right wing and Sterling Price the left, the all-out Confederate assault on the thin Federal line at Elkhorn Tavern brought the fighting in Cross Timber Hollow to its climax. The stubborn Federals needed to hang on until reinforcements arrived from Little Sugar Creek, while the rebels knew they had to drive the enemy back and gain a foothold at the tavern. For a few short moments, Carr's Federals seemed to hold their ground, but the advancing rebels were too numerous and too determined to be denied. As the Confederates erupted up out of Cross Timber Hollow, the Federals defending Elkhorn Tavern were in danger of being surrounded and overwhelmed, so Carr ordered a withdrawal to a fence line on the south side of the tavern. The Confederates had captured Elkhorn Tavern, but there the momentum of their attack petered out. Units were intermingled since the difficult terrain had wreaked havoc on alignment, and then, too, fatigue and hunger were finally catching up with the rebels. Many of the desperately tired southern soldiers wandered around the tavern and its outbuildings in search of food. With only 30 minutes of daylight left, the Confederate attack at Elkhorn Tavern faltered amidst growing confusion and disorganization. It was just then that Samuel Curtis arrived on the field and took command of the fighting. With darkness falling, Curtis launched a counterattack that made some headway but failed to dislodge the Confederates from their newly won foothold on the ground around Elkhorn Tavern. But the Federal line had held. Earl Van Dorn had finally taken the area around the tavern, but he hadn't won a victory. The Federals had been pushed back, but Samuel Curtis had kept his head, met the threat to his rear at Leetown and at Elkhorn Tavern, and he hadn't been defeated. What each commander was able to do tomorrow would decide the winner of the battle. At the end of the first day of fighting, the battle was essentially a draw, which was still a remarkable achievement for the Federals. 
In his book, The Battle of Pea Ridge, The Civil War Fight for the Ozarks, James R. Knight writes, quote, Although it wasn't planned, Curtis just reacted to events as they unfolded, what he and the Federal Army managed to do on March 7th was remarkable. Over the course of eight hours, while engaged in two separate battles, they had reversed the entire army, and the supply train had been moved to safety. By the morning of the next day, the rear area had become the front line. The army had moved back two and a half miles and turned almost 200 degrees and was now facing northeast. End quote. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. History never says goodbye. It just says, see you later. Edward Galliano was right when he said that. Events keep happening over and over again in some form. And that's the reason I produce the podcast, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. What is it? We take stories of history and apply them to the events of today to help you perhaps understand them better. We are also part of Airwave Media Network. I've been doing the program since 2006. That's a long time, and the show has a long name. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. Find me wherever you get podcasts. During the night, Curtis shifted his troops about, readying his army to continue the fight the next day. He had all four of his divisions centered on the Telegraph Road, just south of the Confederate position at Elkhorn Tavern. When the sun rose on March 8th, Samuel Curtis would have his army ready to renew the struggle. During the night, Van Dorn's army faced a crisis that wasn't fully realized yet. Since no one seemed to realize that the Confederate supply train, with provisions and the Army's reserve ammunition, was still toiling along somewhere back on the Bentonville detour, Van Dorn, who had ordered his army to march hither and yon across the countryside and given not a thought to logistics, was about to pay the price for his inexcusable negligence. On March 7th, for most of the fight at Elkhorn Tavern, Earl Van Dorn and Sterling Price had faced one Federal division and had outnumbered the Yankees two to one. As the sun rose on March 8th, the Confederates faced all four of Samuel Curtis's Federal divisions, and the Rebels now found they were the ones outnumbered two to one. It was only when Curtis launched his 10,000 men drawn up in a line almost a mile long in a massive attack that morning 
that Earl Van Dorn realized his ordnance and supply train was still a good five or six hours away from the battlefield. And with his artillery batteries all but out of ammunition and his soldiers' cartridge boxes almost empty, Van Dorn suddenly realized he had no way to stop the overwhelming Union assault, and so he informed Sterling Price he had no choice but to retreat and save the army. After Van Dorn ordered his army to break off the fight, the rebels retreated in three different directions. From the area around Elkhorn Tavern, one group headed north on the Telegraph Road. This group included General Albert Pike, but he was unable to bring any order from the chaos. Within a couple of miles, the mass of men fragmented, with some, including Pike, turning off onto the Bentonville detour, back the way they had come, while others kept heading north, all the way back into Missouri. A second group of retreating Confederates was led by General Martin Green, the commander of the Rebels' supply train. Green had been laboring to bring up the wagons, plodding along behind the army on the Bentonville detour. Some of the remnants of Ben McCulloch's division had hooked up with Green, so when a messenger from Van Dorn arrived with news of the retreat, Green had perhaps 3,000 men with him. After getting Van Dorn's message, Green managed to get everyone turned around, and although pursued half-heartedly by some Federal cavalry, he managed to slip away. Meanwhile, the main elements of Van Dorn's army went east on the Huntsville Road. Van Dorn and Sterling Price led what was left of Price's Missourians, plus several units of McCulloch's division, out to the southeast. The mass of men had traveled several miles before they realized the army was retreating instead of just shifting position. When they realized they were retreating, many of the soldiers were angry, since they didn't feel they'd been beaten. One Louisiana soldier said, quote, it was clear enough that there had been a shameful piece of bungling in mismanagement, and the discontent and clamor became general, and everyone was disgusted. End quote. When some Missouri soldiers asked State Guard Brigadier General James Rains if they had truly lost the battle, Rains answered, quote, By God, nobody was whipped at Pea Ridge but Van Dorn. End quote. Unfortunately for Rains, Van Dorn was an earshot when he said that, and Rains was put under arrest. Despite the feistiness of the rank-and-file soldiers, the part of the Southern Army that retreated with Van Dorn and Price was in sorry shape. The men were exhausted and hungry. For many of them, it was their third day without rations, and so when they stopped to camp that night, everyone was out foraging, ransacking the Arkansas countryside for anything edible. The rebel soldiers, still separated as they were from their supply train, were generally without tents or even blankets or overcoats to deal with the winter weather, and now they faced a daunting trek back to the Arkansas River Valley over some of the wildest and most rugged terrain between the Alleghenies and the Rockies. Despite the perilous situation his command found itself in, Earl Van Dorn left his men the next day. Taking a small, select group with him, he struck out southwest toward Fayetteville and arrived in Van Buren two days later. That left the wounded Sterling Price to attempt to lead the army to safety. A sergeant in the 3rd Louisiana who followed the Missouri troops on the retreat said, quote, The distance to Van Buren in a direct line was about 90 miles. This would have been nothing if there had been anything like a good road and tolerable weather, but to reach it, we might have to traverse twice that distance. The White River and its many tributaries was in the way. There were no roads or bridges. The country was mostly hills covered with scrub oaks, rocks, rivers, and creeks. 
and so poor, as some men expressed it, that turkey buzzards would not fly over it. The weather had now set in worse than the dead of winter, cold biting winds, sleet, frost, and snow. Price's army had preceded us, clearing the country of everything that could be eaten by man or beast, even to the last acorn, which seemed to be the only thing the country produced. End quote. The other Confederates, the ones who retreated back the way they had come through Bentonville and Fayetteville, were not separated from the supply train, but they also apparently looked much the worse for wear. One minister who watched the rebel soldiers stream back through Fayetteville wrote that, quote, Now the army was a confused mob, not a regiment, not a company, in rank, save two regiments of cavalry, which, as rear guard, passed through near sundown. The rest were rabble route, everyone seemingly animated by the same desire to get away. End quote. For over a week, thousands of men in hundreds of small groups trudged over the crest of the Boston Mountains and down into the Arkansas River Valley, where the Confederate winter camps were located. Samuel Curtis and his victorious Federals stayed in the Pea Ridge area for ten days after the battle, until Curtis was satisfied that the rebel army was truly gone. The Federals then fell back up the Telegraph Road to Keatsville, Missouri. Officially, Curtis's army suffered 1,384 casualties, with Carr's division accounting for over half the losses during its stand at Elkhorn Tavern on March 7th. Confederate casualties during the battle were never officially reported, but were probably around 2,000, with many hundreds more lost during the approach march to Pea Ridge and in the awful retreat back to Van Buren. Once back at Van Buren, the Southern Army began to recover from its ordeal and slowly regained something of its strength and organization. Earl Van Dorn began planning for another grand offensive, but on March 25th, he received orders from Albert Sidney Johnston to bring his command to Corinth, Mississippi, where Johnston and PGT Beauregard were massing troops to strike at a federal army that was concentrating just across the Tennessee state line at a place called Pittsburgh Landing. With those orders to Van Dorn to move his army east of the Mississippi River, Albert Sidney Johnston was essentially ceding northern Arkansas and southern Missouri to the Yankees for the foreseeable future. Van Dorn would move his army east, but would arrive at Corinth too late to take part in the Battle of Shiloh. Confederate General Thomas Hindman will raise another rebel army in northwest Arkansas later in 1862 with the goal of threatening Missouri again, but he'll be defeated at Prairie Grove in December. After that, no organized Confederate force will threaten federal control of Missouri for the next two years. Samuel Curtis was nominated for promotion to Major General after the battle on March 27th, but sadly, on that same day, he learned that his daughter, Sadie, had died of typhoid in St. Louis. Curtis would also take his army east, shadowing Van Dorn's movements at first, but then he struck south through the countryside of eastern Arkansas, finally arriving at Helena on the Mississippi River on July 12th. In September, Major General Curtis was given command of the Department of Missouri, but after some abolitionist remarks of his offended Missouri Governor William Gamble, Curtis was reassigned to the Department of Kansas and Indian Territory. Curtis's reassignment was purely due to politics, with Abraham Lincoln saying, quote, One of them had to go, and as I could not remove the governor, General Curtis lost his command. End quote. 
In his book, The Battle of Pea Ridge, The Civil War Fight for the Ozarks, James R. Knight assesses the two days of fighting in the wilds of northwest Arkansas by writing, quote, The Pea Ridge campaign pitted a young, dashing, and aggressive cavalryman and Indian fighter against an older engineer and administrator. For both of them, it was their first major engagement. The cavalryman and Indian fighter rushed to battle, pushing his men and trusting more to speed, good fortune, and bravado than to organization and planning. In doing so, he exhausted his men, divided his army, and lost control of his logistics. His men fought valiantly, but could not overcome the odds that haste, mismanagement, and bad luck stacked against them. End quote. Knight goes on to point out that the old engineer, on the other hand, kept control of his army, and during the battle, he didn't panic when confronted by the enemy's unexpected moves, but instead maneuvered promptly to meet them, turning his entire army completely around in the middle of the fight. Knight concludes by saying, quote, The Battle of Pea Ridge was fought in an obscure place across the mighty Mississippi from what were considered the more important theaters of the war, and it was overshadowed by the federal victories at Forts Henry and Donelson two weeks earlier, and then by Shiloh a month later. Seldom in the war, however, did the control of so much vital territory depend on the outcome of one battle. Though none knew it at the time, Samuel Curtis's victory at Pea Ridge ensured federal control of Arkansas, north of the state's namesake river, and the entire state of Missouri for the rest of the war more than 85,000 square miles, end quote. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. But actually, our recommendation this time isn't a book. It's an album by a fellow named Clark Hansbarger called Dream of a Good Death, New Songs of the Old War. Yeah, um, Clark contacted us and was kind enough to send us this CD and we were really quite taken with it, so we wanted to let you guys know about it. It's 10 songs, and the title, Dream of a Good Death, was inspired by Drew Gilpin Faust's book, This Republic of Suffering, Death in the American Civil War, and many of you might be familiar with that book already. Anyway, in the liner notes to the CD, Clark writes, Dream of a Good Death is a folk opera of sorts. I first intended to tell a story of the Civil War from a variety of perspectives, but eventually settled on Southern narrators, not because of any sympathy for their cause, but for the texture of their voices and the irony of their tales. And Rich and I were really impressed not only with the quality of the music, but also with the amount of historical research that obviously went into each song. Clark really did his homework for the topics covered in the songs on this CD. Anyway, we hope you check out Dream of a Good Death, New Songs of the Old War by Clark Hansbarger, and we'll put a link to his website on our site and also on Facebook. But as always, you can find all of our book recommendations, or in this case, a CD recommendation, by going to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. We wanted to let y'all know that we've released the fourth members episode. We used the members episodes this month to look at what Jefferson Davis was doing in 1861 after the start of the shooting war. And then we'll use next month's members episodes to look at Abraham Lincoln's activities during 1861. And we do want to say a special thank you to new members of the Straw Fit Brigade, Simon, Steve, and Peter, who joined this past week. 
And with that, we'll say thank you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Next week, we'll head back east to Virginia and start to talk about the first battle in history between two ironclad warships. So we hope y'all will join us for that. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. it's time for this episode's book recommendation but actually our recommendation this time isn't a book it's an album by a fellow named clark hansbarger called dream of a good death <laughs> oh shoot <laughs>